Good morning, church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus as we continue our time in January in that book of Titus. We're going to be again in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 this morning. If you have your Bible, love for you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have those paperback Bibles that are nearby. We'd love it if you would grab that and follow along with us this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're going to begin with that reading this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we begin this morning by confessing our dependence upon you. We are dependent upon you that we would even have received this word. It is a grace to us that we have your revelation, that we have the gospel preached to us, and we ask why. Why have we received this? Why why has the gospel come to our door? It is grace to us. We are not worthy to have even heard, let alone receive. And so, Lord, we begin our time of reflection in this passage with thanksgiving. And Lord, we pray that according to the the word of promise that we've received, that if we would incline our ears toward wisdom, if we would seek as a people who lack, if we would knock, a door would be opened for us. Lord, that there is promise in your word for a people who would turn to it and hear. So Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding this morning in our time in our text as you would give us a recall of the scriptures that we have read in the past that you would give us conviction of sin or you would give us faith this morning as a, a gift by which we receive your grace that your holy spirit would supply for us everything that we need for salvation this morning for salvation and for the life that grows up as the fruit of our salvation. Lord, we pray all these things, asking them of you in expectation that you would give them because that is who you are in your gracious, your abundant grace toward us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to look actually at just the second half of verse 11. We began in verse 11 last week with an extended look at the grace of God, that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has actually come. And when we speak of the grace of God appearing, we're speaking of something very specific. In fact, we're speaking of someone very specific, right? When we speak of the grace of God appearing, we're speaking about what we just celebrated at Christmas during the course of our Advent's reflection and celebration. We're talking about Jesus, We're talking about grace appearing in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. 
And what we're told in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's a substance. You could put a period, even an exclamation point on that part of the sentence. But the sentence continues to explain to us what it means by the reality that grace has appeared. We're going to discover three things. We're going to discover the grace of God appearing, bringing. We'll see next week the grace of God training. And then in our final week of study of this passage, we'll look in verse 13 at the grace of God as we are waiting for the hope that we have in him. But this morning we're going to consider what it means that the grace of God appeared so that he is bringing salvation for all people. Let's begin by looking at the word bringing together. What does it mean that the grace of God has appeared and then has brought something, that it brings salvation for all people? It means that the grace of God has an activity, right? It has something that it does. It has a consequence of its appearing. The grace of God brings. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. The grace appearing is a reality that brings salvation. So when we speak of salvation, our minds should immediately go to the reality that salvation is the consequence of the appearing of the grace of God. I hope that happens quickly for you, that when you hear about salvation, you quickly think about grace. And so you, when you hear about salvation, you quickly think about Jesus, that apart from the appearance of grace, salvation doesn't come. Apart from grace appearing, there is no salvation. Now, we're going to look at a number of texts of Scripture this morning. And I would encourage you, write some of these down in your notes. Write these down in the margin of your Bible and go back and reflect on them further in the week. We'll have these on the website as well when we post the podcast. So you can go to those verses and find them there as well. This morning, I'd encourage you to go to Romans 1.16. You can't go much better than Romans 1.16, right? This is one of the most precious verses about salvation that we have in the scriptures. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Right? What is, what is power? Power is something that does something. All right? When we speak about power, I know when I was studying Greek in college, I was spending time with my professor, and and I discovered that these words had different ways that you could translate them, okay? And one of the ways that you can translate that that word power is just the word able, that it's able to do something, you see. So when it speaks about the power of God, it's able to do something, what does it do? It saves. The gospel is the power of God that is able to save. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Romans, to be sure, is very clear that salvation for everyone is qualified by the necessity of faith. Look at it. It's sitting there in the passage. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We'll come back to that in the third point this morning, but... It's also in this order of revelation for salvation. Look at the Romans 1.16 again. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Let's consider, what does it mean that the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ appearing is first for the Jew? To be clear, I mean by the word Jew, all those who are descended from Abraham and others who became a part of of that great nation. We have that record of others being brought in throughout the course of the Old Testament who were once on the outside, being brought in to the inside through their belief, through the confession, being brought in among the people. This is not a new thing that God is about. Throughout the scriptures, we have a people who received covenant promise of God's steadfast love and mercy. Now, the key marker that made the Jews a people is not Abraham. Now, I just defined the Jews as a people descended from Abraham and others. So how can we do that? It's because the key marker that made the Jewish people a people is not Abraham. The key marker that made the Jewish people a people is the covenant of God. It's the grace of God to make a people who were not a people, a people. God took a people who were not a people, just a man wandering around in a land that wasn't even his own, no descendants, and he made them by his promise and his work, his power, his ability. And he made this person who was not a people, He made them his people by means of his covenant promise. It's the steadfast love and mercy of God that then preserved this people through opposition against all foes and through all trials. It's the grace of God that at every point makes a people a people. It is to all these that the grace of God appeared. However, throughout salvation history to the Jews... It was veiled by their place in salvation history. The appearing of the grace of God was still a veiled appearing. Grace was announced to the Jewish people. Grace was pictured for them, but it was pictured in shadows and symbols and religious rituals and through prophetic revelations. But grace itself, grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ had not yet appeared so they had not seen him fully and face to face they had not seen the work of grace enacted they'd seen it revealed they'd seen it promised they'd seen it pictured they'd heard it explained but it had not yet appeared now the jew has a great honor and priority in salvation history the jewish people were first Through the prophets, they were the first to hear God directly. Oh, what a gift. To them, the whole of the scriptures were given. It was to them that it was given. To them that it was recorded. Through them that it was preserved. To the Jewish people were given the law by which they could see both the righteousness of God and the rebelliousness of their own hearts and lives against him. What a gift to see not only who God is, but to see who they are. To the Jewish people, first was given the promise of redemption. They were even rescued from worldly and political disaster over and over again. They saw the salvation of God at work in their midst on a smaller, more circumstantial level. 
They saw the power of God right there. They were the first to see these things. The Jewish people were the first to know the promise of God to hear their cry. Oh, what a promise, right? They knew more than just a promise that God would hear their cry. They cried out to God. He heard and he responded with a gracious rescue and provision. The Lord heard their cry and he worked for rescue. But for all of the priority of the Jewish people, for all the blessing, for all the promise, it's not until the grace of God appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ that salvation itself is finally secured for all who believe. That's why our passage this morning says that it's when the grace of God appeared, referring to Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people. All that came before was a promise and a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's the light and he is the fulfillment. No one was more clear in explaining the greater privilege of actually seeing Christ over simply receiving the revelation of the promises to the prophets than Jesus himself. Jesus, he says this, in Matthew 1, 11, 11, in Matthew eleven eleven, he says this, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was in the line of the prophets, right? And he is the last of the great prophets to prophesy that the king is coming, right? That salvation is at hand. It's just right here. He's the last of the promise, prophets to announce the coming of Jesus and to prepare the way. Yet, Jesus continues, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist was the last of the prophets to be born prior to the coming of Jesus, and Jesus calls him the greatest of all those who came before, and yet those in the kingdom, that is those who actually see the face of Jesus and and come into the kingdom by means of actually seeing the work of the gospel, are greater than he. To be sure, on this side of the grave, John the Baptist did not see the fullness of Jesus' life. He did not see his sacrificial death on the cross and he did not witness his resurrection. But he did become a witness from his place in the heavenly places because his hope was in the same place. His hope was in the promises of God that Jesus secured for John the Baptist and for all of the prophets and all who would believe and all who would see following his coming. John did have the privilege of witnessing the gospel from his vantage point of heaven. So what's the purpose of God in choosing and prioritizing Israel? Isaiah, we spent a good bit of time in Isaiah, and this theme arises a number of times during the course of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.6, it says this, I will make you, speaking of the nation of Israel, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, the extent of grace to the end of the earth. The revelation of covenant love and mercy, promise and hope for the Jews was to extend to all the nations, even the ends of the earth. The Jews have a priority and a benefit 
from hearing first of the grace of God. But the purpose of God is that that grace would extend to the ends of the earth. And so now we consider the Gentiles. Let's first clarify the purpose in Romans 1.16 is to explain that there are two people in the world. There are those who are Jews who have received the revelation of the old covenant promises. And then there are the Greeks, the Gentiles, and all the rest. Greeks referring to Gentiles. By extension, this means that it refers to all the peoples who are outside of the covenant community and its promises. So apart from the revelation and the promise that God gifted to the Jews, the question for us, is there any grace for the Gentile? We've already explained that there has been great grace for the Jews. They've heard the promises, right? They've heard, they've received the revelation of God through the prophets and through the law and through the rituals of the people of God. The very fact that they are a people at all is the grace of God. But is there any grace for the Gentile? Consider Acts chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. In past generations, he allowed all the nations, that's all the the peoples of the earth, to walk in their own ways. Yet, though they were walking in their own ways, not having received the law, not having received the prophets, not having received the promises, walking in their own way, yet he did not leave them without witness. Well, what witness did they have? What grace did God give to all the rest of the nations? For he did good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You hear that word giving? That word giving conveys the idea of grace. God has been gracious to the nations to give rains and fruitful seasons, food and gladness. All these are the gift of God's grace in every time and every season and in every place. God has been gracious to all of the nations. This is his, the, the lavishness of his disposition of kindness to all peoples. But he had not really revealed his covenant promises to all the nations. All of these gifts are grace, but they are not true and saving knowledge of God. You can know that somehow this seed became a plant and this plant bore fruit and that fruit is good for food and you can be amazed by it. And you can eat and you can be glad, but you will not be saved. And you have no true saving knowledge of God. This is the deepest root of all of our sin, that what we would do from that place is we would live unto ourselves rather than worshiping the creator. That we would shake our fist at God and say, on my own, God, I can live. I'll take the fruit of your fields and I will make my own way in this world. And that's what the nations have done in every time and every place. Romans 1 bears witness to that if you want to consider that on your own during the course of the week. So grace, grace has appeared to every single person in every single place in every single nation to the ends of the earth on the planet. It's to the Jews first bringing a knowledge of the promise of salvation as it comes to them through the prophets. But grace appearing, the person of Jesus 
is the only one who brings salvation. Look at the passage again with me. That's why we're considering this in detail. For the grace of God has appeared. And it's the appearing of Jesus that brings salvation. No other way. Nothing that came before had any substance until the coming, the fulfillment, the light of Jesus. Grace appearing is the reality that brings salvation. Apart from the appearance of grace, salvation doesn't come. But grace, as it comes, as it appears in the person work of Jesus, brings salvation for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Consider John 1, 14 and 16. Beautiful cause for worship, even the content of our worship at times. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh, right? That's the appearing of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Do you see it? The appearing of grace bringing salvation. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. For from him, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Friends, that is a fuller explanation of what our passage is this morning. It's in the appearing, the coming of the word made flesh, who is the only son of the father, who is Jesus Christ, that becomes for us grace upon grace upon grace. That's what it means when it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Salvation. What is this word that's been brought? It's a word that could be explored and ought to be explored for the whole of eternity. The word salvation is multifaceted. Thomas Manton, that I've spent a good bit of time with and has been helpful to me in my own study, he writes this. But here is not only a ransom and deliverance, the way we often would think of salvation, not only a ransom and deliverance, but an inheritance and exaltation. Now, as I consider the word salvation, I consider the word salvation in a narrow and technical sense as well as in a broad sense. In the narrow technical sense, you might say a person is saved from a burning building, right? And if you say that a person is saved from a burning building, you could follow it saying that the person is saved to not in a burning building. That's really all that matters, right? Deliverance, rescue. It's a very simple definition, a narrow definition, a technical definition of salvation. Saved from in a burning building to not in a burning building. Thank you, sir. Right? It doesn't mean that they live in a mansion. As far as salvation is concerned, you could live on a street for all you care. You're not in a burning building anymore, right? All the saved care about is the fact that they aren't in danger any longer. But there is a a broader definition of salvation, and there's something in us that's longing for that, right? That's why when the firemen show up at the building, they don't just get them outside of the building and then leave them there, drive off and say, whew, that was a close one, right? When we speak of the broader definition of salvation it doesn't just answer the from and the to question it answers the for question it goes even beyond a greater 
two question and he answers the four question. We are saved for the glory of God and our joy in him. We're not just saved from death. We're not just saved from sin. We're not just saved from the right judgment of hell. We are saved to God for his glory and for our joy in him. Let's take a moment to consider deliverance. Before we, we badmouth the fact that we aren't in the burning building anymore, let's consider what it means to be rescued. One commentator says, when sinners could do nothing to escape the results of their evil deeds, they started the fire in the building and now they're stuck inside of it. When they could do nothing to escape the results of their evil deeds, God took action to deliver. You hear that power word again? That able word again? That action word? God took action to deliver them. Grace unto salvation is the work of God throughout the whole of the Bible. It's a story that's repeated over and over again. Just consider these six examples. Noah, right? Noah is rescued, delivered from the flood. Lot, he's rescued from destruction in Sodom. Isaac is rescued from the requirement of sacrifice. Israel is rescued from Pharaoh in Egypt. The judges and the kings are repeatedly rescued from enemies all around them. And Israel is rescued and returned from their exile, right? a theme that repeats itself and there's so many more examples but I want you to notice something that's peculiar as I was considering those examples and as I was recounting others in my mind almost all of these and many more that we didn't even list take note of how many of these disasters are actually God rescuing a people from a judgment that he himself sent how many of these are originally sent as judgment of God upon the people in a first place there's a theme in the scriptures we don't have enemies that are simply enemies and storms and relationships and finances and a possession problem what you and i have and what the scriptures have borne witness to throughout the whole of the story is we have a god problem we have a reconciled to God problem. God is right. God is just. God is good to judge a people who have rebelled against his gracious rule. Let's just consider two examples from the list that we said just a moment ago. All of those stories begin with God's graciousness to provide abundantly. God creates all things good, right? Mankind rejects God. Mankind increases in violence and rebellion. God judges rightly with a flood, and God rescues a remnant. God gives Israel a land. It's beautiful and bountiful. Israel rejects God's law. Israel increases in violence and lawlessness. God judges with enemies and Exile, and God rescues a remnant. A story that plays itself out over and over again. The people set the house on fire. 
but the fire is the judgment of God upon the people for their behavior inside of that house, the way that they destroyed his gracious provision. And then God himself goes in to the fire and brings out a remnant. So the question that I have for us this morning is, have our hearts been so awakened as to realize that that isn't just the story of the scriptures, that is the story that we live in. That is the redemption story that we find ourselves caught up in. Where are we in the story? And before you jump to, we're the remnant, right? (laughs) Let's sing. We're the ones who set the building on fire. That's where we are in the story. We're lost and there is no escape from the righteous judgment of God. That's where we are. Unless he appears. And unless what he brings is salvation in the form of rescue. I think that we live in a day, in fact, I've spent a good deal of time who have pushed back on me and my presentation of the gospel and saying, you know, in in all of the talk of judgment, really what people want to hear is God loves them and wants to be with them. Like, oh my goodness. That is so abundantly true. If you first understand the reality that salvation must first be defined as deliverance and rescue. That it has to be first understood as a people who were lost and without hope if he did not first deliver. It's important that we not skip the rescue step. That we, don't, that we actually understand the reality of the judgment. That we understand the reality of the consequence and the reality and the hopelessness that we are in prior to that reconciliation to God. It isn't difficult to realize that we are a people in need of deliverance. We are a people in need of rescue. We can see that in our lives, and we cry out for deliverance. We cry out for rescue. We all have problems. So many people even come to churches because they have problems, and they're hoping that maybe the church, after they've perhaps tried some other things, maybe the church can help them with those problems as well. But what the problem is is really that we think of our problems as merely circumstantial. That we can come and we can get a circumstantial fix and things will be all better. We think we have a money problem. We think we have a time problem. We think we have a health problem. We think we have a relationship problem. But what we find more difficult, and sometimes even when we come to church and we're looking for one solution, we find it difficult to believe that actually... What we have is a God problem. What is wrong with us is not that somebody has rejected us. It's not that we're down on our luck. What is wrong with us is that we have rejected God as our rightful and gracious ruler over us. That's what's wrong with my life and with yours. And so we are under the right weight and severity of judgment. We spent a good deal of time talking about this last week, but our true salvation, our true hope, our true deliverance and rescue from our true problem, not just our circumstantial problems, but our sin problem, our only salvation can come if someone might be willing, like the ram for Isaac, to step in and become a a sacrificial substitute. If some vessel would gather us into it and carry us through the flood 
to safety. The righteous wrath of God will come down upon him in our place. The rain waters of the flood, the deluge would crash in upon him and we would remain safe inside of him. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Do you hear it? Justified, made right. So that the fire no longer is right to burn us because it's burned him Instead, blood has been poured so that our blood might not be rightfully poured, so that we might be delivered and rescued. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is why it's right for us to say that the grace of God appeared in the person and work of Jesus in his gospel that he brought salvation. So Jesus is our deliverance. Jesus is our rescue. Jesus is also our inheritance and our exaltation. He is the exalted one, right? But what has he done? What is the power of the gospel able to do, powerful to do? Not only deliver and rescue, but to exalt us as well. There's more to salvation than simply deliverance and rescue in much the same way that there is more to the gospel than the cross. And it's true. There is a resurrection and a reign for Jesus the King. Salvation is for the glory of God and our joy and life in him. The very next verse in Romans chapter 5, the very next verse, verse 10 says this, for if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He reiterates that. It's through a death that we were reconciled. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You hear that? It isn't this that a death has been died, it's that a life has been lived. Life has been taken up. We've been reconciled to God so that there is nothing between us and God. We've actually been brought into justified, right relationship with God. Therefore, the blessings of his goodness and grace may freely fall upon us, his people, as it did at the first. Listen to Titus 3. Just a few verses later in our own book together. In Titus 3, 4 through 7, it says this. Really, it's a, it's a lengthened statement of our passage this morning. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Do you hear that? For the grace of God appeared. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When? When grace appeared. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Make note of that. I wish we had time to dig into that this morning. Renewal of his Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there's our phrase for the broad definition of salvation, right? It is not just that we have been rescued. It's not just a salvation in a narrow deliverance and rescue sense. It is a definition that is in a broad, sweeping inheritance and hope of eternal life 
sense. Just hear the words that the apostle associates with salvation. Goodness, loving kindness, mercy, washing, renewal, poured out on us richly. The great hope of the redeemed is heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For the one who has been saved by grace through faith, we have deliverance. It's true. And we have inheritance. It's true. The price has been paid and the life has been lived. All of this we have in and through the righteousness and work, the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared. And now when we read bringing, we know that he brought something that had been promised for so long. But when he appeared, the substance of the promise appeared. For the grace of God has appeared bringing. And when we hear that word salvation, we can think deliverance and we can think inheritance. And now we can continue to read bringing salvation for all people. We can see there is a a breadth to which this salvation goes. All people. We've actually already covered this in a good bit of detail. I won't reiterate it much Salvation for all people is not intended to suggest salvation for every single one. That would be an overstatement, an unnecessary interpretation of a normal use of the word all. It refers to salvation for all without respect to time or place or family or nation. Salvation for every single one who comes to him in faith. You remember Romans 1, 16, right? For all who believe, guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed for every single one by the promise and blood of the Savior himself for all who believe. That everyone is qualified by belief is good news, that there's no work that has to be done, there's no righteousness that has to be fulfilled on Our part, we simply believe. We place our faith in what he has done. And what he has done has guaranteed everything that we've talked about in salvation. So the answer to the meaning of the question, what does all mean, is is really pretty clear. It's consistently explained throughout the whole of the scriptures. This time, for whatever reason, he decided not to throw in that little qualifier Perhaps because at this point we should know what he means. I think there's a more important question for us here, though. Perhaps the question that we should ask isn't what does he mean by all who, all people? We know what he means by all people. Perhaps the question we should ask is why any at all? More importantly, why me? Not why all people, why why me? I have nothing of myself. I am not a people. I, I, don't deserve, I have no righteousness about me. I have nothing that is deserving to be rescued. Why did you come into this burning building, walk to the door of thresh, my threshold, and come in and rescue me? We have caused a wonder. 
And it's not just me. I wonder why me and mine? Why me and those who are around me? Why the people of my nation? Why the people of my community? Why the people of my people? Why has God come to us? Why has God brought salvation to our doorstep? Why did he come to my family as a child? Why is he so abundantly, by grace, so often through this church, brought that news to my family's doorstep? Why has God brought good news to my soul? And the answer, over and over again to every one of those questions, is actually the topic of our study in the whole of this passage. Grace. God's purpose in grace. That the grace of God has appeared. He willed it. Of who he is and his purposes to glorify himself in salvation, he chose to bring salvation to my door. And I or whoever was at the door turns and says, hey everyone, grace is here. It's appeared and he brings salvation. Come with me. We went running out of that building by means of his rescue. And the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, and he saved us. And that just leaves me with wonder. It begins to erase questions, many of the questions that I would have for other reasons and other ways. And it just leaves me with wonder. It leaves me with humility. It leaves me in the position where only faith is due. And it leaves me with worship. There's one more thing that it leaves me with. Because there's nothing that I have been able to calculate. I've searched the scriptures and I've searched my own heart. There is no meritorious cause. There is no power. There is no ability in me that could put a marker on my door to say, come to that threshold. Come to my place. Of all the places in the building, you should come to me. I've searched and I've found nothing that marks me out for salvation. And yet he's come. I'll tell you what that does is that gives me confidence. It's left it to where I don't search anymore. I don't have to search for righteousness. I don't have to search for means of grace in and of myself. I don't have to be worried that I might somehow remove the mark and he won't come and save me. That, yeah, he promised to to come and save me, but I'm going to miss out on the inheritance because I really messed it up this time. The fact that the confidence is in Christ leaves me with simply this. Grace appeared. Grace appeared. And because it's the purpose of God in salvation, the hope is substantially sure. I have no confidence in my ethnicity. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I've searched And I've found it wanting. No confidence in my nation, my nationality, my social standing, no circumstances. They change too quickly. I don't know what my circumstances will be when he returns. I have no confidence in my obedience. I have no confidence in me and mine. I don't have a confidence in this church. I don't have a confidence in my ministry. I don't have a confidence in my community group or my family. I have no confidence in any of these places. I have confidence in the grace of God alone. 
And that leaves me with an absolute and sure and unshakable, persistent, pursuing hope of eternal life. Heavenly Father, so so very little for us to say. But to simply ask that you would cause our hearts to search and be found wanting of any means of salvation in ourselves. And in that despair, in that poverty of spirit, shine the light of your grace to every single heart. And as a people who have been found wanting, as a people poor in spirit, who have heard of your grace, who have seen your grace, who know and have believed in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would cause us to look up and see our righteousness. Our righteousness not in ourselves, in him. That we would see that you are the one who has come to save that you are the ark in which we are hidden that keeps us safe and passes us through the waters of judgment. Lord, you are the one who has rescued us out from among our enemies, even the enemies of our own hearts. And Lord, that from that place, you would give us not only confidence, but also praise that the purpose of salvation for the glory of God and the joy of his people would rise up even in this place this morning. As a people newly confronted with our poverty of spirit, would we rejoice in the abundance of your grace? Lord, I would just ask one more thing. The circumstances that we came in here with, and all of us did, not just those who are newly searching, newly confronted with difficulties and looking to the church, but every single one, the circumstances that we came in asking you for help, asking someone for help with, I pray that you would situate them well in the light of your glory and salvation. And that you would give us wisdom together in what it looks like to rightly walk and what it looks like to rightly search you out. Some of these circumstances are, are not merely circumstances. They, they are difficult. They are true trials. And so we cry out to you that the promise that was given to the Jews that you and they would cry out, you would hear, has been extended to us by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we cry out that you would hear. But again, Lord, we pray that you would situate those circumstances rightly underneath of your deliverance and your inheritance that we have, that all of these things will pass away. And what will remain is the exaltation of your people as we are caught up with you. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for all of these things. You are our only hope, and you are sure. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.